Thanks, Carly. Um, so, welcome. We have, uh, just want to give you guys a quick rundown again of what we have left. Uh, we are finishing Colossians tonight. We made it through. Well, we will, hopefully. Um, and then next week, uh, and this is uh, a very fitting time, I think, for what we're going to do next week is, you guys who are here, I know that being uh, four or five weeks from the end of school, you're choosing to prioritize this. Um, there are other things you could be doing. There's study things. Cam is skipping one right now. Um, so uh, uh, we're talking about prayer tonight, so this will be good for you, Cam. Um, but there's all sorts of things vying for our attention. There's all sorts of things vying for our time. Um, we just had a bunch of you apply for GCF leadership in saying, hey, I want to be more involved with GCF next year. Even as you grow and you're thinking of doing discipleship, there's all these things that are vying for our time. And so next week, what we want to do um, is we're actually going to look at a theology of time. Like, what does God think about time? And how can we structure our time in a way where we can do what God wants us to do with school to the fullest of our ability? Right? God wants the best scholars God wants the best students, but also how can we serve God in the midst of that? So here's what I want you guys to bring for next week. It's going to be kind of like a workshop in a sense. These next three weeks are. We're going to do time, we're going to do discipleship, and then we're going to do um, a pizza party to plan our welcome week next year. Those are going to be our next three weeks. Um, I want you to bring your schedules. So whatever your, your fall schedules are for next year, I want you to bring it because part of what we're going to do as a response um, to seeing how God cares about our time and wants us to think well on that, we're actually going to look at stuff and begin to weave in um, all sorts of different things in our schedule. It's not where Tyler's not going to make your schedules, so don't worry about that. I'm not going to sit here and block out bricks of time for that, but it's just a helpful exercise for us. So to be prepared for that is great. Um, so bring your phone or whatever. If you're old school and you have a calendar that you want to draw on and mark up like Cam, you could do that as well. Um, but tonight we're rolling on and let me give you uh, just a brief glimpse into what life is like um, in the Valine home. Very often, you can maybe ask Becca to corroborate this. Uh, very often, Sarah will ask me to clean the house uh, before she runs off to work or she has to go meet with someone um, or go grocery shopping for Saturdays with Sarah. And I'll be like, sure, but then I'll look around. We live with kids who just throw things everywhere. Um, and so I'm like, well, what do you want me to do? There's a thousand things that could be done. And so she'll graciously, she'll condescend to me uh, and she'll say, just vacuum, vacuum the floors. Uh, just do that one thing and you'll be great. And so I, being the most amazing, loving husband I am, I go get the vacuum. Why is that? That wasn't a joke. Um, <laughs> I go get the vacuum, and I start vacuuming, and I'm going along, and I, I'm like, man, these baseboards are filthy. So I stop the vacuum, and I go get a damp cloth, and I go, and I start going along the baseboards, and then I get to this, so this is real life story. I get to the end, the end table in my, uh, our living room, and I see it's super dusty, because our house is, it's a new house, and it's so dusty. And so I'm like, well, I, I'm right here. I'll just go get the duster, the Swiffer and I'll come and dust it. And then I start dusting it, but then that's where like all the books we've been looking at over the course of the week gather. So I'm gonna take these books, I'm gonna go put them in my office. And so I get my books, and I go walk into my office where I have another end table, which is naturally disorganized, but my kids know no boundaries, and so they have invaded my space in my office, and my table is now covered with toys. And so I take those toys, um, and I go walk into the playroom, and I get to the playroom, and I see these dishes that they had from snacks that were in there. And so I'm like, well, I gotta get rid of these dishes, because 
gross. And so I take these dishes and then I go to the sink and I'm like, I'll just put them in the sink. Problem, the sink's full. So I'm like, okay, I'll just wash the dishes. And then I go to go put them on the drying rack. And the one thing that never gets done in our house is like removing things off the drying rack. And so I get there and I have these dishes and the drying rack is full. And so now I take these dishes and I put the dishes away and then my kids wake up. And all it has managed to happen when Sarah comes back is I have moved the vacuum from the closet to the living room and left a string of completely unfinished tasks. Um, and I don't know how it happened. I don't know. I felt like I was doing stuff. I was getting things done. I had the best of all intentions and grand aspirations. And a lot had been accomplished, but very little had actually been effective. And maybe as you're looking at finals, or as you're looking at summer internships or things like that, you have that feeling as well, where you step back and look, and there's so much content. There's so many grants to apply for. There's so many potential internships to pursue. You're just like, I don't know where to start, right? Or maybe you've been that person, you've had this sickening feeling. Maybe, hopefully I'm the only one who's had this feeling at a job, where it's like your first day on the job, and the manager's train, training you how to do something. And like, do you understand it? I'm like, yeah, I got it. And then the manager walks away, and what's the first thing that happens? You forget everything they just told you. And you stand there, but you're nervous because you don't want to go, they just told it to you. Like, are you four? How could you forget this? And you walk away, and so you just try to, you fake it till you make it, and just kind of hope that they come back or you see somebody else doing it. And this happens a lot in our lives because it's a human problem. That we get lost in the weeds or we forget what it is we're doing, even though we have the best of intentions. And this is our last week in the book of Colossians. And through these four chapters, Paul has been unpacking something huge. So huge that the name of our series was called All of Christ in All of Life. Because Paul wants to do exactly that. He wants the gospel to influence everything we see, everything we do, every idea we have in life. He wants it to be seasoned with the gospel. But what Paul knows is what was true in 60 AD is also true in 2018 AD, and that is that we often get lost in the weeds. We often get overwhelmed by the details and don't know where to start. Or we, we feel so well equipped, we've absorbed this letter, and we move out, and as soon as we close the book, we're like, I don't know what's next. I forgot what it is I need to be doing. So in his closing remarks, Paul is going to give this church something to hang their hat on. He's going to prepare them to move forward with this gospel. He's giving them next steps. And this is important because not only is this the end of the book, but it's beginning to be the end of the semester. And my hope is that over your time um, through this year, you have a desire um, to grow in Christ regardless of where you're going, whether it's on project, whether it's overseas, whether it's back home, whether it's staying in Missoula, that you see this desire that the gospel should give us to grow in understanding the gospel worshiping Jesus and loving others. Paul wants us to have some direction when we have this huge gospel. And so what he's going to do is he's going to take this vast theology he just gave us in Colossians, and he's going to give us one practical thing to do at the end. And this is what we're going to see tonight, is that prayer is the fuel for Christian living. Prayer is the fuel for Christian living. And there are no other points, confusing Tyler points you have to figure out. That's the one thing we're going to look at today and we're going to hopefully walk home with. So let's pray. Um, Lord, it's interesting to pray at the beginning of a sermon about prayer. Uh, because so much of what we think about prayer uh, is trivial. Um, it is uh, task-driven. It is a formality. But Lord, I pray that we do not see prayer 
through the lens or through the eyes of men, but through the eyes of God. That we see prayer as the wonderful means of grace that you have given us that fuels our affection for God and our ministry towards others. So we ask you to be gracious to us tonight, to be gracious to me as I preach, to us as we listen and heed the Holy Spirit in our lives. I thank you for your word. I thank you for this campus. Lord, we do pray for the Veritas Forum going on just uh, underneath us in the Uri Lecture Hall, Lord, that the gospel um, would be proclaimed there and that souls would be saved. So we pray for that in your name. Amen. So in the book of Colossians, so if you have your Bibles open and you just look at what Paul has done in this book, in chapter one, he leads with this high picture of the sufficiency of Christ for from him and through him and to him are all things. And in the end of chapter one, he gives this clarion call of his ministry. I have come to preach to you the gospel of Jesus so that you may be mature in Christ. There's no grounds for growth for the Christian, outside of a gospel understanding. And then he begins to challenge in chapter 2 the empty philosophy of our world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, with the logic of God's salvation. Moving on, he begins to qualify us because of what we know about Jesus and the salvation we have of needing no greater salvation. Then he calls us in chapter 3 to put on the new self, to put on Christ and to put off sin, to put off the deeds that were part of our old life. And then what we saw last week with Stephen preaching is he defines for us the way in which every relationship you will ever have as a human being is one that's to be lived in submission to Jesus Christ. There's really not one aspect of our life that Paul has not discussed, and there's no bigger thoughts than what Paul is trying to leverage um, on us in the book of Colossians. And now he's beginning to send this church out. Right? These letters, they're not, Paul didn't just sit down and be like, I'm going to write this letter to no one. He wrote for a church, to people just like you who are considering the gospel in the context of their day-to-day life. And this is what Paul wants to give away to these real people. And look at what um, uh, Carly just read for us in verses 2 and 4 of chapter 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So it's my hope in this room. I've said this twice now. It's, it's not a grand hope. Hopefully it's not a novel hope that me um, being up here, being uh, your guys' pastor, wanting to see you grow, that you guys want Christ to be the center of your life that you guys want to move forward in faith without being shaken, that you guys want to do what he says in Colossians 3, which says, when Christ, who is my life, appears, and we want to hide our life and our affection, our desires and our needs in Christ, we want to take what Stephen said last week, and we want to see how our relationships with those around us are the theater in which God wants us to love them to the fullest of God's glory by seeing why God cares about that relationship. And so he's sending this out. You want to do this, but where do you start? Paul's command to you is pray. If you want to grow in Christ, pray. If you want to be confirmed or firm in Christ, pray. If you want to not be deluded by plausible arguments, pray. If you want to see your relationships with your friends rightly, pray. If you want to see Christ as your life, pray. But not just pray. Pray steadfastly. Continue in steadfast prayer. Being watchful. Looking out for it. Being vigilant. Proactive. 
and with thanksgiving. God's will for you to grow in gospel richness begins with God's command for you to pray. Have you ever thought of prayer as the means of rejoicing in Christ and growing in the gospel? For me, as I wrote this, this was a paradigm shift for me. And so it brought to mind these questions of what is prayer and why do I pray? So what is prayer? Um, My handy-dandy theological dictionary is called urbandictionary.com. And so I went on to Urban Dictionary and looked up the definition for prayer. The first one was some terrible religious acronym, taking the four letters of prayer and making something out of it. If anyone ever does that in GCF, I quit. Okay, I quit and I walk away. Um, Words have meanings, letters have meanings in the context of words. Um, But this is how Urban Dictionary defines prayer. Although not promoted by public schools, it is the most popular study technique of high school students, typically used minutes before a test, as in, please, please, please let me pass this test. So Cam is here tonight um, exercising this definition. But as funny as this definition is, there's actually, the reason why it's funny is there's a semblance of truth to it, right? Where is this definition wrong? It's wrong in that we don't hunker down and just loft mortar shell requests to God at the last minute, hoping to be delivered from something. It's not these flare prayers given to a lottery God in the sky, hoping to remove whatever circumstance comes against us. But why is it right? Because if you've ever been in that position, the cam might be in tomorrow. You're driven to pray because of a sense of desperation, right? That there is nothing left for you to stand on. And in that regard, it's right. Because prayer is a desperate reliance upon God. And how I'm going to define prayer tonight for us is this, is that prayer is expressing ourselves to God because he is God. Prayer is expressing whatever emotion we have, thankfulness, sadness, anger. God can take your anger. He's not scared of it. He wants to help you understand it rightly, expressing whatever emotions we have, fear to God. Why? Not to vent, but because he's God. You see, prayer is something we do because God is God and we are not. Prayer is something that we do because God is a personal God, not some distant, impersonal force governing our future. He's a God who died for you, cares for you, and wants to help you. Prayer is something we do because God has chosen to equip his people with this powerful resource. So that's what prayer is, but why do we pray? Even Jesus himself says, well, God already knows what you pray before you pray it. That seems like it would cut us off at the knees, right? Well, then why am I doing this? Why should I pray if God already knows? Why should I pray if prayer is not this flare request hoping for this magic to be worked in my life? We pray because access to God in prayer, if we think about what prayer is, access to God in prayer is one of the most restorative benefits of the gospel. Our ability to pray is one of the great gifts that we once had that sin perverted that now Jesus has made right. Look at what you guys hopefully looked at this break um, in Romans 8, 26 through 27, and look at how it speaks of prayer here and the work of God in prayer. Likewise, in verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. If we do not know how to pray, or we do not know what to pray for as we ought. So why is it important that we should still talk about prayer? because we often don't know what to pray for. 
but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So when we pray, we pray both as the impetus of the Holy Spirit causing us to pray, but we pray also because it's God's will that we would pray. It's God's will that we would appeal to him to know what he already knows. But look at this, in Hebrews uh, chapter 9, or 10, excuse me, verses 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, not only is the Holy Spirit and God the Father involved in prayer, but here we have the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, again, that's Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, prayer is something that the entire Godhead has chosen to give to us as a blessing. Our greatest problem was that we were separated from God. And with that came being removed from any sort of not only relationship, but communication with it. It wasn't just a stressed relationship. It was complete and utter communication silence. We had no access to it. You think of the sci-fi movies or the adventure movies where the heroes are going for only a minute out of the range of communication with the base and the amount of trauma that brings to them. We spent eternity cut off, not only from God's relationship, but from God's communication. But when we were saved by Jesus Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, God now works through the Holy Spirit to draw us to prayer. God wants us to pray. See, I got a card from my insurance company the other day. Um, it's a new insurance company that we're under. So I get these cards. I'm kind of excited. That's what happens when you get old. And uh, uh, I saw it and it's like uh, Dr. Skype things. Like any time of the night, I could just Skype this doctor. And I'm like, I have three kids. This is excellent. Um, and so I got excited. I, I showed it to Sarah. And this is really, if you even watch other commercials, they're kind of talking about this. This is the future of healthcare, so to speak, is having nurses and doctors available to take calls at obscene hours and like look at things and like all they want to do at three in the morning is look at this lesion I found on my shoulder uh, to this person I've never met before. Um, but that's what people are doing because there's this benefit of access and availability. And so I was pretty stoked about this. And then I was reading through the packet and it says, you're qualified because you're a member of this insurance, but you still have to pay $70 a month. I was like, well, I'm a lot less excited for this opportunity now. Because as much as I want that constant communication, I don't have that much money to pay to talk to a doctor at the rare occasion that I'm sick in the middle of the night. But in our salvation, we have constant and immediate access to the God of the universe. And it comes at no cost to us. Because Jesus bore the cost. Jesus bridged the communication gap that stood between us and God and more than simply providing advice or an educated opinion on what is wrong with us in prayer, we get access to the grace and change of God himself. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, says this about prayer. He says, to pray is to accept that we are and always will be wholly dependent upon God for everything. So if we are dependent upon God for everything, 
That means when it comes to our own desires to grow in Christ-likeness, to grow in worship of Christ, to grow in our ability to help others love Christ, if we want to be satisfied in the gospel, we must be reliant upon God in steadfast prayer. I read a book by an old Puritan, um, and he was talking about prayer. And he talked about, and I realized this in my own heart, how dishonest our prayers often are. Think about most of the times that you pray, your flare prayers in the moments of tests, or perhaps when you do your devotions in the morning, maybe when you sit down to eat. And we pray during these moments, but as soon as we finish our meal or as soon as our devotion time is done, we realize, if we're honest, that that devotion has been nothing more than drama. Like we have prayed because we feel we ought to have prayed. We have done this because someone did it before us and so we do it and we know that if we want to eat food and have it taste good or help us in any way, we need to pray for it. We think that uh, if we can just pray before our devotions, God will give us some sense of excitement that I normally don't have when I'm reading Leviticus at five in the morning. But what happens is when that moment's done, we turn away and act like that prayer was nothing. Our prayers were something to give us an immediate solution but we really didn't want prayer to actually accomplish anything. We wanted prayer to give us something. We wanted prayer to maybe relieve something. But if we don't have the biblical view of prayer, what we're actually neglecting is the power of prayer to weave into us, into our souls, change by causing us to rely on God in a blessing that continues when the meal is done and when the book is closed. See, prayer can easily become a task or a checklist instead of a meaningful relationship with our God. Faith just tweeted out this week, I saw a quote from Corey Ten Boom, who is a heroine of the faith who hid many Jews in her house during the Holocaust. And she had a quote that said, is prayer your steering wheel or is it your spare tire? Is faith this thing that comes out only when times are rough or is it something that drives your life? See, prayer is not something we offer to God to change our experiences. Prayer is something we offer to God to change us. When you pray, you're really not just offering God your requests. When you pray, you're doing the dangerous task of offering God yourself. You see, we have no hope for holiness. You have no hope to grow in Christ if you're not persuaded to pray. Right? What power would we have to change our own hearts? What power do we have to change our own hearts? Don't you think that if we were capable of changing our hearts and desiring all the right things we desire, we would do it? I would love to not desire Taco Bell all the time. But there's like a five minute, no, there's like a two hour window after I eat Taco Bell that I don't desire it. But as soon as that window is gone, I want Taco Bell again. I know it's unhealthy. I know it's probably going to kill me. I know I'm going to hate it for two hours after it, but I just love it. And that's just food. And yet we think we can desire enough on our own to love God and hate sin, to put on Christ and serve others. We can't change our hearts, not under any illusion of our own power, but God can. And more than that, God wants you to want him to change your heart. 
God is fully capable of doing it. It's not like he has to petition us. He's like, all right, I'm lazy. I'll get up and help you. God wants to help you, but he wants you to want what God wants. And that is why we pray. It is bending our will to the God who wills all things. And here's the thing is if we really see prayer as that moment in time where we allow God to be God, it's going to have crazy ramifications on our life. Another author named Jerry Sitzer says this. He says, there is thus no safety in prayer. Our prayers will thrust us into the action, into relationships, causes, institutions, conflicts, and needs, all of which will demand our time, our resources, even our lives. The answers we pray for will involve us, change us, and redirect the course of our lives. Most of our prayers fall short because they are too cautious and conservative. We want problems to disappear, but not to necessarily be solved. We want symptoms to be treated while the disease continues to progress. We want conflicts to be smoothed over, though the underlying issues remain untouched. You see, when Paul is calling us to constant, watchful prayer, He is calling you to be vigilant, to see where your ability ends and God's grace has to begin. Where the wall of humanity hits us and the supernatural grace of God given to us in our salvation soars to even new heights. But what does that look like? How is that made manifest in our life? When do we know we've hit the wall of humanity? Well, Paul's going to give us a big illustration of that in this text coming up. He's going to model this for us on kind of a large level in verses 3 through 4. Look at what he says. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So Paul's a stud. Because here we have Paul in prison in Rome for preaching the gospel. And why is Paul a minister? Do you remember background of Paul? What happened to Paul that's significant? Yeah. So, so how many of you have audibly had Jesus slap you in the face and say, uh, first things first, now you're a Christian. Second things first, now you're going to go and tell other people about Jesus. Anyone in here? No? All right. Stephen, that makes support raising easier. No? Um, and so here we, ha- here, we have, here we have Peter, Paul, and this happens to him. And he does what Jesus calls him to do, and he's in prison. If anyone had the right to be like, excuse me, I missed something. I did what you told me to do. You told me to go into the nations and I'm sitting in prison. If anyone had the right to say that to God, it would have been Paul. But did you notice what his prayer was? Paul prayed for doors to be opened, but it wasn't the doors of his cell. Paul prayed for people to be set free, but it wasn't him. Paul prayed for the doors of his cell to be opened, didn't pray for the doors of his cell to be opened to him but that the door of his mouth would be open for the gospel while in prison. If that's not prayer with thanksgiving, 
in a circumstance which would seem to neuter our prayers. I don't know what is. Now, I'm sure Paul prayed to be released from prison. It would have been a bad prayer. It's not bad to pray for God to deal with external circumstances. In fact, in other parts of scripture, Paul speaking to slaves, he says, if you can seek your freedom, seek your freedom, do it. Try to get out from under that burden. But while you are in that burden, still seek to honor God in your work. Seek it with all your heart. And what Paul is modeling for us in this text, and even in that other text, is that constant prayer seeks to ask God to help us specifically with what it is we are responsible for. What it is we have responsibility in regards to. In prayer, we can pray for God to help with things that we have no control over. We can pray for God that the teacher, to God that the teacher will give us an easy test. On a more serious note, we could pray that God would remove the cancer from our body. That God would eliminate the illness in our friend. But to be faithful in prayer, we must simultaneously pray for the external while also praying that God changes us and what we do have control over. And if all we do is pray for the external without asking God to change us internally while we sit in the midst of those circumstances, we are limiting our ability to be thankful in the midst of the darkest moments. And it is not wishful thinking that Paul talks about praying with thanksgiving while he is in chains in prison. And that's because prayer You are going to encounter moments in this life which are hard, which are difficult, where your circumstances are dark. But it is prayer which raises up us above our circumstances and asks for God to be glorified in the midst of it through our affections and our desires. Paul says, my will is to get out of here. God, I want to go to Spain. I want to go to Spain. I want to build a church where there is no foundation. I want to go to where the gospel hasn't been preached. But if your will is for me to be here, then I want to be here to the best of my ability. If this is what you want for me, give me the strength to see what you see and do what you've called me to do so that I might be grateful for the opportunity that you have provided me. Paul's prayer life allowed him to look at his condition in thankfulness. And instead of wallowing in self-pity, he was able to use that to serve God and work mighty works while in captivity. Prayer not only fits our hearts on the will of God, but when we fit our hearts on the will of God, it also equips us to do what God has called us to do. And that is not what's best for you and you alone. It's also what's best for those around you. Look at what Paul says in Colossians 4, 5, continuing. He says this, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You see, when we are steadfastly asking God to change us in prayer, we are afforded the opportunity to have a new perspective where we see whatever it is we're encountering as an opportunity to pour ourselves out to others. See, the very wisdom, there are two commands here, pray and walk in wisdom. And the two are not disconnected. The very wisdom that Paul wants you to walk in towards those who are outside the faith is the very thing we get access to in prayer. How are we to make the best use of time if we do not know the goal of the God of time? That's what we'll talk about next week.
How are we to season our words with grace if we are not ourselves exposed to the gracious words of God himself? How are we to answer others with the words of life if we have not sought God for answers in our own lives? When we are vigilant in prayer, what we realize is there are no empty encounters. If we are changed by God and made thankful in our circumstances. So if God changes your heart to see something differently, and then if God changes our hearts to be thankful about where we are, even though it's hard, we see how God can be glorified in it, then doesn't it make sense that we'll begin to act in our circumstances differently? You see, as Stephen talked about last week, you may be employed. Who thinks they have the worst job here? No one, good. You applied what Stephen preached last week. Uh, So in the hypothetical situation, you're uncomfortable with your job. You may be in a job that you think is, I was the cleanup boy at a meat department at Costco. I loathed it. And I had a terrible, I did not have someone like Stephen preach to me a theology of work when I was in college. And I hated it. You may have a horrible boss. But if you're mindful and reliant upon God with thankfulness, it will, in that same circumstance, if you begin to see that workplace as a place to glorify God and be like, this is where you've put me and I want to do it to the best of my ability, it'll change the way you act around people. Won't it? Can you imagine the kind of witness Paul would have been if they bring him in here, he's on the streets praising God for his glorious deeds, calling people to repent, and then he gets in prison. He's just the most bitter man. Here's this great prophet of joy. Yeah, he's joyless. Here's this man speaking of the hope of God, and yet in his demeanor, he's hopeless. Here's this man giving away the words of life, and yet to the guards, he is muttering cursing and saying, this is the worst. There's no life here. That's no witness. The attitudes we have about our circumstances and our opportunities, they're actually flipped from what they should be. You see, when we come around fellow believers, this is where we act like everything's okay. Right? We feel like, man, things are going great. I don't have any problems at work. I don't have any problems otherwhere. Anywhere else, like we're good. And what happens when we go to our friends who are not believers, that's where we get a little loose with our language, Right? How many of you have been in a group context studying and you start harping on the teacher or the TA? And it's not just like, I find this teacher really difficult to learn from. It's like, this lady doesn't know anything. She has no right to teach in this school. She just like looked at a cracker box, jack box and showed up and is trying to tell us something that we have no relevance to in our life. Or what about this? What if you're in a group project and there's always that one person who uh, doesn't do their part of the job? And what happens is someone says, hey, uh, let's just say his name's Stephen. Stephen, <laughs> Stephen's so annoying, isn't he? Like he never does his work. And what we don't say typically is, is I think he's been really busy. Um, I think we should give him a break. We say it's like, yeah, he's an idiot. He's, he's literally making us do twice the work. And we begin to slander people who aren't pulling their weight. But what Paul is saying is this t- in this text is when we see those opportunities of a teacher who is ineffective, of classmates and peers who aren't doing things to their fullest, there's still a responsibility on us to do what God has called us to do. And when we see in that moment, the will of God has chosen to put you there for his glory, your good and the good of other people, it curbs our tongue. 
to where our words and our responses are seasoned with salt, having flavor and endurance to those who are around us. When we say, well, we'll make the best of it, the only way we can make the best of it is if we see the gospel as what's best. Because that's the only thing which has been well worn down in the crucible of history in times of success and in times of strife, in times of hardship and in times of rejoicing. And when we are fitted with that, we're able to provide an answer as to why we're able to cope with such difficult situations without being despondent, without being bitter. They should notice that, hey, this guy doesn't harp on the teacher like I did. This guy doesn't gossip about the boss like this guy does. This guy doesn't hate Stephen like Carl does. But why? Because we realize that wasn't our greatest problem. I can endure that. Because Jesus died for my sins. I can get through this. Because it's all right. I have been delivered from death. I can be delivered by people who don't do a great job at work. And you know what? I can help other people with it. I can help them see clearly. I can help them hear and understand the gospel. You see, when we pray well, we can see challenging opportunities for what they are. Challenging, but opportunities nonetheless. And you see, the more dedicated we are to doing this, the more winsome we become because it shows the world our hope is not in our circumstances. Our reliance is not upon other people getting their work done. Our reliance is on the God who saved us. In verse six, you'll notice it says, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Grammatically, there's a lot of moral obligation in that. We ought to speak a specific way because we ought to answer people in a specific way. As believers, there is a weight and a responsibility that the God of history has given you in every circumstance. They matter, your words and your moments. And this is why we need to be prayerful. We need God to help us see how we ought to see. We need God to weave eternity into our hearts. We need God to season our words with grace. We need God, why? Because he is God and we are not. And this is a weighty task, but it's a task that Paul says God is for you in. God wants to help you in it. But Paul also wants to remind us of the role the church plays in this as well. If I could use one word to describe the church in Colossae, as we've looked at it, it's shaken. They're uncertain, they're scared, they feel um, ostracized from society, they feel like they missed the boat, they feel ill-equipped, undervalued, overlooked, and hopeless in the face of their specific culture. And as you look at the importance Paul has placed on our affections towards God, that we ought to have this right view of God, and we ought to respond to others in this proper way, God has said that. God says, you should see me rightly and see others rightly and therefore act rightly. We can look at those three things and we can feel a similar weight that perhaps the Colossians felt. I don't know if I have what it takes. I don't know if I can do it well. I don't know if I can endure it. I felt this so last Thursday when we went out and shared the gospel, all day, more than any other day, I don't know what it was, I just felt this nagging insufficiency to go out and share the gospel. But you know what encouraged me? is one, knowing I was going to do it with you guys. But the other was knowing that we had prayed for it at elder meeting the day before. There are nine men 
who prayed for the evangelism that was going to happen. And look at the way Paul is going to give encouragement to his church in these closing remarks, verses 7 through 18. And just listen to the consistent repeated words. Tychus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, probably wise name change, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. So these are the only Jews who are laboring for the cause of Christianity. And they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Aeropolis. Those are the two cities next to Colossae. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see also that you read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Acrippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. So I don't know, how many of you have seen the meme regarding the Avengers Infinity War? Like, the greatest crossover event since, and then you, like, fill it in. Have you guys seen that? So, like, this prayer... <laughs> is the greatest crossover over event in all the history of prayers. Here Paul name drops some of the biggest names in Christendom at the time. He even includes Mark and Luke, two writers of the gospel. He includes Epaphras and Onesimus, who we see in other places in this text. He includes people from various churches in different geographical locations, all under one theme. They are praying for you. They want you to be encouraged. They are involved, they are bought in, they are concerned with how you are, and they are praying, what does he say about Epaphras? Struggling on your behalf in his prayers. They want you, they are appealing to God, not for their sake, but for your sake, that you would grow in maturity, that you would stand firm, that the gospel would be the blazing center of your life, O Colossae. And Paul wants them to see that not only are they praying that God would equip them to see properly, but that the church and the saints of the church are praying that same prayer for those people. You ought to pray that you grow. God wants to grant you growth and the believers who are around you are praying for your growth. This is why we have evening service at Sovereign Hope is we want the church to pray for the church. This is why I love that GCF is not this autonomous campus ministry but belongs to a church because you guys have been prayed for. The work you are doing when you feel alone and feeble, when you walk up to that person when we're doing evangelism and there's nothing more you want to do than to walk away, you've been prayed for. That the gospel would be sufficient for you. The work God has called us to do is work wet with prayer. And the beautiful thing is, is here's this church that's receiving encouragement after encouragement after encouragement. And then what does he say? 
take this letter and take it to another church. <laughs> Go and encourage other churches. You see, Paul has called the church to apply this entire gospel in this book to the most intimate areas of their life. But his takeaway, the hook he wants to hang his hat on, the guiding principle of where do we start is pray for yourself and pray for the church. Ask God to change you and encourage those who are around you. So in these closing weeks of GCF, what we're doing now is, as we've talked about, we're beginning to turn to kind of this workshop of ministry. How do we prepare for next year to serve people who are just like you? Can you imagine the encouragement we would share as just a singular campus community if we all prayed for each other the way that these people were praying for the church in Colossae? What a joy it would be to serve knowing we are backed by the fleet of heaven praying for us. As we wrestle through awkward discipleship conversations, as we wrestle with weird interpersonal communication skills that I have, the people are praying for you. And not just people, not just the elders. We like the elders, but the elders aren't here with us. How cool would it be if Alan knew that Jackson, when Alan's meeting a new freshman, that Jackson is praying for Alan in that moment? That he is not unconcerned. He doesn't just want an update. He says, I want to participate in that. I want you to see rightly, act rightly, think rightly, and I want God to help you in that. And so here's what I want us to do. As we transition to the last phase of GCF this year, I want you to spend time thinking about two or three areas where you need God's grace in prayer. And don't think just of these external things, right? We're not responsible for the external things. We're responsible for the internal things. So in this, for this specific thing, I want you to think about internal things that you would like God to change, strengthen, equip, and help with. And then I want you to go to somebody else in here and ask them to pray for you. It might be awkward. It might be the first time you have these kind of conversations with people. I hope not. I think we're growing at GCF where those aren't awkward foreign conversations. But if we want to do what God has called us to do, we must be a group that prays for one another. We must be a group that prays for ourselves. So here's the thing. This book was written, if you look, I looked on Google Maps, there's still this little green spot in south central Turkey called Colossae. You can't get directions to it, can't find it, can't drive there or fly there from Missoula, but it's there. It's roughly 6,000 miles from where we are tonight. It was written almost 2,000 years ago. And in that 2,000 years, the gospel of Colossae has crossed continents, oceans, language barriers, and serves as the foundation upon which we meet tonight in the gospel. When you pray for your own holiness, when you are steadfastly praying, watchful in thanksgiving, for God to grow you, it changes the course of church history. If we are committed to praying for ourselves and for praying for others in this room, what will Christian, Christendom look like in 10 years because of our prayers? And not even prayers that just God would grow an abstract church. I guarantee you the people in Colossae were not praying for a room of college students in Chem 123 on April 11th. But where they were praying is that God would be glorified. And when God is glorified in the individuals of the church, the glory of God spreads like wildfire. I have great dreams for what God is going to do on this campus through you guys. And it starts with prayer.
So let's pray. Lord, we need help. As easy as it is to rag on um, living in a progressive, post-Christian, crazy, liberal, whatever you want to call it, society, it's so much easier to neglect the areas of weakness we have in our own hearts. But you have provided for us prayer wherein you change us, you strengthen us. We can bring our insecurities and our fears and our doubts and our worries and our weaknesses and our thanksgiving and we can give it to you because you are God. You are the one who we are reliant on. You are the one who has equipped us, called us, saved us and will endure us to the end. So Lord, make us reliant upon you in all areas of life. Not simply for the sake of GCF, but for our own salvation, for our own maturity. And as we grow together by faith, through prayer, by the glory of God, GCF will be strengthened. The church will grow. Souls will be saved. But Lord, make us responsible to be steadfast and watchful in thanksgiving. Praying that God would give us clarity of the gospel so that we would open our mouths and speak clearly as we ought to speak. That we might walk in wisdom towards outsiders making the best use of our time with our words being seasoned with, as salt, with grace so that we may answer anyone of any question. Lord, it is exciting to do what we get to do. So let us do it well. We pray this in your name. Amen.